am so grateful to have the honor and privilege to start our new series for the summer. Over the next eight weeks, we are going to be in a series called Promises, Lived In and Lived Out. Everything we're doing this summer, everything from events to Sunday morning gatherings to community get-togethers, we want to be focused on those points of intersection, and I'll even use Rob's hand gesture, his points of intersection. Um, We make fun of him, well, we don't make fun of him, but everyone knows Rob for his hand gestures, whether it's the snapping or the X of the intersection. Um, But everything we do this summer, we want to be leading towards those point of intersections so that we are equipped and we are able to recognize when God is working around us, we don't want to be people who squander an opportunity to join him. We want to be ready. And the best way to know what God is doing is to know who he is and what he likes to do. See, the nature of God tells us who God is, and the promises of God all flow from his nature. Who he is is the foundation of what he does. Because God is compassionate, we have a promise that says he is with us. We have a promise that says he is merciful. We have a promise that says he loves us. Because he is loving, because he is giving, because he is generous, we have promises that evolve from that place of his nature. When we look at the promises, we are able to live in what God has promised to be because we know who he is, and it changes the way we go out and live in the world. This series, we are focusing on his promises. See, promises are found in the journey of faith as we move towards the restoration of the kingdom and towards our reunion with God. We know that at the end of all things, our salvation means that we get to be with God again. So everything from the moment we say, Lord, I am yours, he is with us, and going forward, we walk it out in faith to see it come to pass. So today we are starting with the very first promise, but before we get there, I have a very crucial question for you. Have you ever been prepared for something to be hard, whether it's an opportunity, a job, just life in general? Have you ever been prepared for something to be hard, only to be hit with a completely unexpected, different type of hard that you were not prepared for. This has happened in so many areas of my life, whether it's something as simple as I was prepared for one kid to need an outfit change and not the other and my entire minivan. It's happened in silly things like when I was in college. I took a class called Multicultural America, and I can share this story because I have confessed this to my professor and Gratefully, he just laughed and enjoyed the funny story and not the fact that I kind of lied in front of his whole class. Um, But so I took this class called Multicultural America, and there was a group project. You all know how I feel about group projects. And yes, this group project went the same way that all group projects do. One person did the work. Hi, it's me. I'm one person. And in this group project, so I'm coming up to class, and at this point in my life, I really hated talking in front of people. I did not want to stand up there and give a 30-minute lecture on what it looked like when the uh, German people came into America. I did not want to do it, so I wrote everything out on the slides, and I gave it to my group, and I said, just read the slides, and we'll get through this. I promise we'll at least get a 90. Just read the slides. And so we get to class that day, and we're the group that's going second. I'm shaking, I'm sweating, I wore black on purpose, and then we get to when the group ahead of us goes, and they get up. They did not just have a PowerPoint slide. They had a meal 
that they prepared from the group of people that they were studying. They put on the proper attire of the people group that they had studied. They came in knowing the language of the people group that they had studied. And we were very shown up. So in the back corner of the classroom, my group is scrambling because now we're like, oh, we cannot just stand up there with a PowerPoint slide and read off of it. And one of the women in our group, who is an adult student, comes up to me and she goes, you are German, correct? And I am German. So I was like, yeah, I am German. Our project was on the German-American assimilation. And she goes, great. You're going to lead us in prayer in German. And she walks away. And I was like, I am not that kind of German. And so we stand, we get to this point where no one is listening. We have now skits from Titanic because Leonardo DiCaprio is German. And then we have music that's coming out of nowhere. And I'm standing in the middle of this presentation and our, the wonderful woman in my group stands up and says, and now we are going to pray for you in German and hands me the microphone. And I didn't know what to do because this was not what I had prepared for. I am German. I'm not that German but I am that Swedish. So I put on my best German accent and prayed a prayer in Swedish and hoped that no one would notice. And as I'm praying over the food that the group before them had given to them in Swedish with a German accent, I see one international worker's son pick his head up and look at me and go, that's not German. And let me tell you, you have not understood hypocrisy until you are praying Swedish in a German accent, looking at an international worker's son and making death threats across the room. I was not prepared for something to be that type of hard. And there's a lot of moments in my life where stories like that are funny. But there's also moments where I haven't been prepared for how hard something would be and it's not as funny. See, there were moments in my life where I was so ready to become a mom. And I was expecting it to be hard. You know, everyone tells you when you're a mom, like a newborn life is not for the faint of heart. No one warned me about toddler life, though. But newborn life, being a mom, it's supposed to be hard. But I wasn't expecting postpartum anxiety to hit and make it unbearable. I wasn't expecting to have to fight with my own brain every day just to want to get up. There's also moments where I, where grief hits, and grief is never expected. You know, we had, three years ago, we picked up our lives and we moved back to the area and we settled in. I had a new job. I was a department coordinator of youth and family studies. I was 26 years old. I was not ready to be a department head or a department coordinator uh, at the college level. So I knew that this was going to be hard. I knew that this was going to be challenging. I knew that moving my kids away from my family was going to be difficult, but I wasn't expecting to have to grieve the unexpected loss of my father. See, there are these moments where life hits us where it counts, and we realize we just weren't prepared for it to be that kind of hard. I remember in these moments that I start, I I am a why kind of person, so I start to ask questions. I say, okay, okay, how did I get here? What did I do? And I try to like reconcile the conflict or justify the pain or you know, just find a way to escape what has happened because maybe, just maybe, if I can find an explanation, it would help. Maybe if I knew that I deserved it, I would feel a little bit better about the pain that I was walking through, like I had to do it. 
Or maybe if I just knew who to blame, the pain would feel like it wasn't all my fault. But oftentimes our pain leaves us in a position where we're trying to reconcile, actually, how God could let this happen. Doesn't he love me? And it always seems to end in this question that says, God, where were you when this happened? Because it's the only place that we can seem to settle any of the pain that we're experiencing. Pete Scazzaro says this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and it's not on a slide, so I just want you to listen and uh, take this in. But he talks about the waiting period of pain, and he says that what makes waiting and pain so difficult is that we are not sure where God is. And I'm going to pause this quote for a second, because just to let you know, like sometimes pain has this way of filtering the way we receive reality. It becomes this lens over our life that warps everything we are taking in, and it becomes all that we can see. To continue with Pete, he says, we are not sure where God is. We're not sure what he's doing, and we're not sure when this waiting will end, if it will ever end. We are helpless, and we're thrust upon him in total dependence. We can't see the future, and there is no way back to the past where we had a sense of stability and order. Pain tends to ruffle up these feelings that make you say, I'm out of control. Nothing's in control. I, don't, I can't predict what's going to happen. I don't feel safe. It rattles the voice of fear that says, anything could happen. You don't know what's coming. And it just points out how deeply our trust is rooted in things that aren't the presence of God. The pain that we experience brings us to places where we then turn and blame God and say, the reason I'm experiencing this is because you messed up. You left me. You weren't here. You were negligent. You didn't do something about this. How could you? And we wind up in a place where in our, the outpouring of our fear, the lack, the lack of control, and in our pain, we blame God. But it's interesting because the fundamental promise of God is I am with you. And most of our pain leaves us feeling abandoned, forsaken, betrayed, left alone, separated. But the gift of Jesus meant that we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which means that we always have God's presence with us that he has never left us. See, it's a fundamental promise of God, and I say that boldly without research backing it up because Scripture says it. When God came to earth as Jesus, he called himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. From garden to garden or garden to city, however you look at the story of Scripture, it is the story of God walking with man, man walking away, and God doing everything in his power to reconcile and restore the fact that he wants to walk alongside us again. God with us is the promise that everything comes back to. Scripture is clear that God is with us even when we don't see it. Scripture is clear that God is with us even when we don't feel it. He has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, never to betray us or abandon us. He is God with us. 
It's our faith that opens our eyes to his presence. See, faith is the lifelong fellowship we have with God, moving us towards our promised reunion to God. I want to tell you a story today of God's faithfulness to his children. See, this moment in Scripture is a formative experience for Israel, and it's cited as proof of God's presence as lifelong, as unconditional, as near, and as active to his people. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapters 13 through 15 as we listen to the story of God parting the Red Sea. I have included the scripture on the slides behind me, but if you will allow me to paraphrase so that I can show you where we see God's presence in this story, I am going to move forward in that. So when Israel left Egypt, when they had this great exodus, they went out and scripture tells us that they, the Egyptians were so afraid of the Israelites or they were so indebted to them and wanted the Israelites to stop the plagues that were coming, that Israel ended up with a lot of plunder. They actually plundered all of Egypt. They took all of their weapons, their gold, their jewelry, anything of worth left with Israel when they left Egypt. So they went out, and it says in Exodus chapter 13 that Israel was prepared to go to war. They were going out into the wilderness. The direct route to the promised land had them walking through the land of the Philistines, so they knew that they were going to encounter battle when they went into the wilderness, so they left ready. But that doesn't mean that they were a people prepared fully for war. They had lived their entire life as slaves. And any wise ruler will not tell his body of slaves the theory of war, but they will make them well-practiced in obeying the commands of war. So they knew how to execute a war, but they did not know how to make the war winnable. So they went out on faith, prepared for war, but God knew that if they encountered the Philistines and they went to war with these people, that it would end up driving them back to Egypt, that it would be too much for them to sustain. So he actually led them down the longer route to the promised land. He led them down the longer path, but he did this to protect, to provide, and to establish that Egypt would no longer be a threat to them and it would no longer be an option for them. And it's, <laughs> Scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 13 that God showed up to lead them tangibly, physically, physically. He came as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night so that whether they wanted to travel by day or travel by night, they had the option and they could continue to go. He was a cloud by day. He was a fire by night. And the presence of God was real to them, tangible and visible. But something happened. And as, Egypt, or as Israel is walking towards now the Red Sea and then over to the Promised Land, uh, the king of Egypt hears about Pharaoh's decision to let the Israelites go. And in one sentence it says, and Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about their decision to let the Israelites go. Now we've all been in that boardroom before, right? where the person in charge says, oh, so you decided to let them go? Well, I'm not going to change what you owe me in taxes. Hmm, sounds like you now have some work to do to replace all that manual labor you just lost. And suddenly Pharaoh realized that the impact of his decision now fell on his shoulders, and they changed their mind, and Pharaoh and his officials gather their armies and go out in pursuit 
of Israel. And he didn't just gather his second string. No, he went out with his finest chariots, the leaders of his army. He came out in full intimidation to meet the people that he had conditioned to obey him and force them back into Egypt. So as Israel is... (laughs) Israel has now met the Red Sea, and in Exodus chapter 14, we see that they suddenly hear Pharaoh approaching. They hear Egypt marching after them. Can you imagine how big that army must have been for them to hear an army marching in the desert? It's not like it was a cobblestone path. And they heard the army of Egypt advancing behind them, and it terrified them, and they cried out to the Lord. Then it says that they said to Moses, because you have to remember that Moses was their liaison between God and man. So anything they say to Moses, they're asking Moses to, you know, you go tell God, and it's like that three-way, like, elementary school chain of conversation. But they turn to Moses, and they say, and they start, we see those questions of fear that we talked about earlier start to emerge, because Israel was people, were prepared to go to war against the people of the wilderness, but they were not prepared to go to war with the captors who had enslaved them and conditioned them to obey. And we see these questions of fear and pain start to begin. And they say, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? And we hear them trying to justify and reconcile the pain they're experiencing out of their fear. And then they ask Moses, what have you done to us? We see them start to blame Moses for being a bad leader, which in turn is blaming God for not being good. And they say, didn't we tell you this would happen? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die by their hand in the desert, which is a funny rationalization considering that they would have died by the hands of the Egyptians either way. So what they're really saying is they would have rather controlled how they experienced their pain. It would have hurt a little bit less if it was a long, slow kill in slavery. And their voices speak of the trust that they had placed in the evil they knew rather than the risk they were uncertain of in their faith. So Moses turns and answers the people, and he tells them clearly, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In the NIV, they use the word be still. And this is accurate because it spoke to all that Israel could physically do. There was no way for them to fight back. There was no way for them to control this pain. They had nothing to do but surrender and be still. But what's interesting is that in the ESV translation, this verse, which is wildly quoted out of context, but the ESV quotes this verse and says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And that word choice is intentional because the pattern of Egypt's thought was to cycle through those questions, to cycle through the questions of fear, the questions of pain, the questions of justifying or reconciling their existence and how they got here, the questions that led them to trying to control their situation, the questions that led them to being in a position where they said, it would be better to have this. I trust this a little bit more than I trust the risk of walking in faith with you. These questions that led them to blaming God became the pattern of their thought. But hear me when I say this, the pattern of your thoughts becomes the voice of your worship. 
when your thoughts are trapped in the pattern of escaping pain and controlling your pain and looking at how you can make your existence what you need it to be, your worship will reflect your fear. Your worship will reflect your desire to control God, and you will worship without the belief that God is good. And that is no longer worship. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And with this command, the angel of God, which is a theophany, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. With the command to be still and be silent, as Israel obeyed, the presence of God began to move. And it is important to note that in this moment of fear, in this moment of pain, in this moment of chaos, the furthest the presence of God ever went was from before them to behind them. In your moments of pain, the furthest the presence of God will ever go is from before you to behind you. I had never noticed before that Scripture says this process took all night. Maybe I had just watched Prince of Egypt a few too many times and got ingrained in the story. I don't know about the rest of you 2000s church kids. But in my opinion, when God parted the sea, it was like, and then there were whales that couldn't cross the barrier and fishes might jump out. You guys remember? DreamWorks was awesome. I pictured it happening in that moment with this great blast of wind and the waters parted and Israel was saved. But it took all night. There was a period of waiting. All night long, the presence of God kept Egypt at bay as the breath of God began to draw back the sea. All night long, Israel was silent as they listened to the sound of Pharaoh's army and hoped in faith that God was going to come through. All night long, Long, Israel was still as they sat between the presence of God and the face of the sea until suddenly they began to notice that the waters were, in fact, parting and deliverance had been brought to them. So Israel crosses the Red Sea, and as Israel moves, the presence of God doesn't leave them. It follows them, but that means that Egypt is able to begin advancing. And as Israel is crossing the Red Sea, Egypt begins to follow. God is still behind the host of Israel, and with his cloud cloud by day, he's throwing them into deeper darkness, and he says that God throws them into confusion, that he then begins to jam the wheels of their chariots, because that's a great way to fight a war. And Egypt is so confused and they're so disarmed that they finally stand up and say, God is fighting against Egypt on behalf of Israel. We have to get away from them. 
And the moment that Egypt professes that God is the reason for this miracle, this movement, this power, that it is God's hand at work here, God brings the waters over Egypt and desolates Israel's enemy. Israel still gets to walk on dry land, though. So he's not only a God that parted the Red Sea, he's also the God that parted half of the Red Sea, desolating those who were against his children. And Israel continues to walk through on dry land, praising God with timbrels and with songs. And in the song of Moses... He begins to worship in Exodus chapter 15, and his whole song of worship speaks to the power of God. It speaks to the might of God, the strength of God, but where he lands, the summation of his worship, that final point that he drives home is on the beauty of the lifelong, unconditional, near and active presence of God. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. You reign forever and ever. This moment is a formative experience for Israel, and it's cited as proof of God's presence as lifelong, unconditional, near, and active in the book of Isaiah. See, in Isaiah chapter 43, the children of God are sent into exile, and they're worried, they're afraid, they're scared, because how can they be pulled from their temple? How can they be pulled from their life? How can they be pulled from every way they know to encounter the presence of God? If they are brought into a new land, how will they have their God with them? And they're afraid. But God in Isaiah chapter 43 identifies himself as the God who made a way through the sea. This is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 17. He says, I am the God who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. And then he continues on to say, forget the former things, the ways you knew to encounter me, forget them. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? He calls Israel back to remember that he is the God with them. Wherever they go, the furthest his presence goes is from before them to behind them. He is God with us. And we see a few things about the presence of God here. As God addresses the fear, their tendency to blame, their habit of trusting in things other than him, he addresses it by answering them with the power of his presence. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, we learn that the presence of God is lifelong. He speaks of his presence as a lifelong fellowship. He says, I called you by name. You are redeemed. You are mine. That means you're his. And he doesn't leave his things alone. He doesn't leave his things unattended. He takes really good care of his things. And that sounds really objective to call you all things, but maybe that'll help us understand just how good he is. He is not going anywhere. He is the faithful one in this relationship. He is also the merciful one in this relationship. So why do we put our trust in other places? Why do we let control and fear and pain narrate our story? So often when we are faced with 
painful circumstances, it's easy to say, God, I need you here, right? When we absolutely are certain that this is out of our control, it's really easy to turn to God. But what about the things where it's like, I could do something about this, so I'm going to. It's so much harder to push pause when we know there's something we could do and turn instead to trust in his presence. Think about it this way. Have you ever encountered a problem where you've said, I just, mm, I just need my coworkers to pull their own weight. Then everything will be fine. Oh, I, just, uh, I just need a little bit more money in the bank account. Then I'll feel safe. I just need to go for a run. It'll clear my head and I can handle the rest of my day. I just need my kids to listen to me. Then I won't be a crazy lady. But every time we say, I just need, we could expand that sentence to really be saying, I don't need God to come in. I just need my hope to be satisfied here. So why are these moments not big enough for God to come in? He has only been faithful to us, and he can only be good. Can we lay down the places of security we quickly turn to and be met instead with his presence? Because God's presence with us is a lifelong fellowship, in faith, we must surrender all other places of trust. The presence of God is also unconditional, and we learn that in Isaiah 43, verse 2. It says, when you pass through the waters, talking about the Red Sea again, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you over. That's an Ark of the Covenant one. When you walk through the fire, Daniel, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now we're getting into Deutero-Isaiah theory. Let's take that back a little bit. (laughs) But the presence of God is good. It is unconditional. And when things around us are bad, it does not mean that God is bad. The presence of God is good. And the bad of our circumstances does not drive him away. The presence of God is so good that when he comes in and touches pain, it turns to beauty. The presence of God is so good that when he sees destruction, he comes in and he brings redemption. It does not destroy him and it does not make him bad. But oftentimes, the fears of our hearts, the things that we're afraid God wouldn't be present for, become the conditions we make our relationship with him contingent upon. And these fears become the voice of our worship. Think about your prayers and the script behind them. What do you pray for most frequently? As you think about them, you might hear that they start to sound a lot like you're asking God to protect you from the things you're afraid of. God, watch over my children. Be with my children. Don't let anything bad happen to my children. God, watch over me. God, go before me. Don't let anything bad happen to me. God, there is this moment in my life where I'm in so much pain. Could you please just take it away? And we start praying prayers where we're actually controlling how God can move. And then when he doesn't move the way we've said we want him to move, we then blame him for not being a good God. The voice of our fear becomes the voice of our worship. So can we lay down the fears that are shaping our worship of him? He is good. Allow him to be discovered as such. Because God's presence is 
unconditional. In faith, we can surrender our fears. We also learn that the presence of God is near and active. And we read this in Isaiah 43, verses 3 through 7. And what this whole passage tells us, while it's riddled with the, uh, allusions back to the story of parting the Red Sea, as he talks about giving Egypt for your ransom, about giving an entire nation in exchange for your life, he tells them that he is omnipresent, that he is near to you, and he is active in his mission to bring us all together. We read in this passage that he is not negligent. There's nothing that goes overlooked. He is in all the details. I know we say the devil's in the details, but that's a lie. God knows every hair on your head. God sees every tear that is shed. He is in the details. He is omniscient. There is nothing outside of his knowledge. There is nothing outside of his hand either. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing too small and there's nothing too big to bring before him. Because God's presence with us is near and active, in faith we can choose to rest with both stillness and silence. We can't earn his presence. See, the beauty of a gift is that we do not deserve it. Gifts often feel cheapened when they're given out of obligation. You have to remember that he is not obliged to be with you. He longs to be with you. You can't earn his presence. He's already here. And to that same effect, when he calls us to be silent in our rest with him, it's not because he doesn't want to hear our voice. It's silence so that you can hear what he is doing. So often our prayers of fear become ways where we're trying to conjure his presence, where we're trying to say, and bippity-boppity-boo, or like, genie, my third wish. You can't conjure his presence. You can't beg and plead, Lord, come here. He's standing right next to you. He never left. He is your very life. We can choose to rest with both stillness and silence. So can we lay down our need to hold it all together. He is with us. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12 say this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Can we process this deeply so that when the world says, where was God when I needed him? You can turn and say exactly where he was. He was before you, and he was behind you. He was with you, just as he is right now. You are a witness to God with us, which means that you must process this deeply in three ways. You must know how he has revealed himself to you in your life. Think of the moments where you know God is with you, and think of the moments where it's harder for you to know that God is present. 
press into those moments and ask him to reveal where he was. You must believe in his salvation as a gift because his salvation means that at the end of it all, we are promised to be reunion. But his salvation also means that this faith you have is a lifelong fellowship moving us towards our promised reunion. There's never been a moment where you have been outside of his love. And you need to understand the impact and the implications of his presence in your life so that when someone around you says, where was God? You can make him known in a moment of intersection. Be his witness. We're going to move to the table now, and as uh, John begins to play, I came in this morning feeling like Jesus wanted to do some healing work in our lives. So I want to take a moment and listen for him and see the work that he is doing in us today. See, there are moments in our life where we have all cried out, God, where were you? I can think of them. I'm sure you can too. So I'm going to ask God to draw those moments to the front of your mind. Holy Spirit, we know that you are here with us. We know that you are good. We know that you are active in your pursuit of bringing your promises to light. God, we know that your mission is to restore the kingdom. And God, we are not lost in the picture of the grand scheme of the mission. We are the mission. So, Father, today I ask that you would bring to mind the moments where we didn't see where you were, that we didn't know what you were doing, that we didn't know how long this was going to last. God, I ask you to bring those moments of pain to the front of our minds. And, Jesus, I ask today that you will reveal yourself to us now. Would you show us exactly where you were? God, would you rewrite these moments of pain, these memories of pain? God, would you change the narrative from a voice of fear to the voice of your truth? God, we long to be people who know that you are God with us, and we want to believe that you are God with us. So may you help us understand where you were, God, with us.